1: From Nice Guy Productions, World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. What does Halloween mean to you? Its origins lie with the Celts some 2,000 years ago. November 1st marked the end of the harvest season and the beginning of serious winter, a time of heightened illness and death. There's Samhain, it looks like it should be pronounced Sam Samhain, but it's apparently pronounced Win, was celebrated on October 31st, observing the belief that the spirits of the dead returned to earth that night. They lit bonfires, burned crops and animals, wore costumes and told fortunes. Over the centuries, what began as pagan ritual has become a commercial bonanza, celebrated by trick-or-treaters, monster movies at the multiplex, and every kind of spook show you can imagine. Over 25% of all American candy sales are made in the Halloween season, which says something, I guess. Halloween and the celebration of all things scary has always been my favorite holiday, even if it never means a day off. From trick-or-treating as a kid, to costume parties and festivities as an adult, it is the season that I anticipate the most. It means a lot to me professionally as well. Amazingly, Hocus Pocus, a script I wrote eight years before it was ever produced, has become a perennial whose popularity seems to expand every year since its release in 1993. I set my adaptation of Stephen King's story, Riding the Bullet, on All Hallows' Eve in 1969. And even one of the episodes I directed of Once Upon a Time took place on Halloween. Coincidence? Maybe. But it is a special time that has transformed from honoring the dead and protecting ourselves from the wicked spirits, laying the groundwork, for next year's crops, to overindulging on Reese's Pieces and outdoing your friends' elaborate costumes. Our beloved horror genre reigns supreme in the multiplexes and streaming services, even though for many of us, and I know who you are, Halloween is every single day. Celebrating Halloween with us this year is none other than the godfather of gore himself, innovative makeup effects artist, actor, and director, Tom Savini. We'll discuss a life that drew upon real-world horrors to making monsters and magic after this. Heavy Metal Magazine and the new fantasy, sci-fi, and horror platform Everscapes are releasing an exclusive two-part series of NFTs backed by George C. Romero, son of George A. Romero, as a precursor to The Night of the Living Dead. The Rise explores the story before the worst night on Earth with an amazing collection of exclusive NFTs. Immerse yourself in this terrifying saga through a 100-piece limited edition NFT collection that includes rare art, 3D digital sculpts, motion comics, and more, all brought to life or death. For the very first time, there will be two waves of terror with the first 50-piece set launching on Halloween. Visit Everscapes.io now. That's E-V-E-R-S-C-A-P-E-S dot I-O now. Available now from Dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She's been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. Val is out now everywhere you buy or rent movies and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Val. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on The Slab. I am here. (laughs) Great. What does Halloween mean to you, Tom, after all these years? Well,
2: there's an essay question if I've ever heard one. Uh, Well, you know, my mother went into the hospital October 31st. In 1946. And I, you know, I wish I had been born on Halloween. Unfortunately, I was born three days later, November 3rd. But that was a
1: long gestation. It sure was.
2: Well, you know, I have four brothers and a sister, and there's 13 years between me and my sister. But uh, November 3rd, that's when Charles Bronson was born. So I shared that birthday and I'm happy about it. But Halloween, but you're, I listened to you, I listened to what you were saying. Halloween is every day with some of us, you know, those of us in this business, you know, every day we're creating masks or makeups. You know, I have a school that teaches this stuff. And every day each, you know, the student comes in, they spend 16 months, you know, creating makeups and monsters and that's what they do all day. So, but 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 basically Halloween for me is a bunch of memories of wearing a devil costume where the pants ripped out that I was <laughs> going door to door, you know, or making up my friends and horrifying their parents. Um, but Halloween, you know, it conjures up all sorts of wonderful feelings. You know, I'm 74. I've had 74 Halloweens, you know, so uh, it's a big right. deal.
1: It's a big deal. Well, what was it like growing up as that little Catholic kid in Pittsburgh? Somebody who who got turned on to monster movies. I, I think maybe it was the Lon Chaney biopic, um, Man sure. of a Thousand Faces, that was a big inspiration for you. What was life like before that light went on for you?
2: Well, I live in Little Italy, so as a kid you loafed on the corners. You know, I was, uh, yeah. I mean, there weren't any gangs or anything, but. Uh, you're right. I was just a little Italian Catholic kid, uh, boxing with my friends. Uh, but Man of a Thousand Faces, it, it really changed my life. I can't make. I can't wait to meet uh, meet up with Ron Chaney again. Yeah. Because, because I'm going to say to him, I should have said this a long time ago, but I mean to say to him that why did that movie have such an effect on me? I mean, why wasn't it just another movie that I saw and life goes on. You know, you go from one movie to the next in the local movie. I saw that when I was 11. Why did that change my life so much? And my theory is I'm a firm believer in reincarnation. I'm going to tell him that I think I was his great grandfather.
1: Ah, (laughs) there you go. Well, you even (laughs) named your son Lon after. I have a son named
2: Lon. Yeah. You know, and I didn't find out till recently that Lon is really Leonidas, you know, I always just thought it was, I thought it was L-H-A-N, Shaney from a book I read a long time ago, but just recently I, I found out that it's Leonidas, and Lon, of course, is short for that, but, um but really, when I saw that movie, it changed my life, as if I was him, you know, it struck a chord, from that day on, all I did, you know, I shined shoes to earn money to buy makeup, and you couldn't, you couldn't learn anything because nobody shared their secrets back then. So I was always experimenting on, you know, I would go to school with half my eyebrows missing or nose putty in my hair for a week, you know, until I realized I could make up my friends. So they would go home with cut throats and half their head burned off. <laughs> on, you know. uh, well, the
1: in the nineteen fifties, like, In the 1950s, there weren't books by Dick Smith or by Tom Savini or anything no. like that. You were kind of on your own, right? Well, I think there
2: was I think there was a stage makeup book, maybe not in the 50s, but, you know, shortly thereafter, the first stage makeup by Richard Corson. And that's when you could learn how to cast a head and put my mustache on, things like that. But I remember walking long distances to the Carnegie Library just to rent uh, or check out uh, classics of the silent screen, because for a long time, I thought Lon Chaney was James Cagney. You
1: know, <laughs> uh, yeah, of course.
2: Only when I my cousin came over one day and he knew I was into this stuff. He said, you know, there's a monster magazine in the drugstore up the street. I ran up to the drugstore and I think for 25 or 35 cents, I bought issue number four of Famous Monsters on the stand. We're talking 1959, 58, 59. And that's the first yeah. time I saw what Lon Chaney really looked like you know, not James Cagney, but the real Lon Chaney. So, um, and I quickly ordered the back issues. You know, I still have a pristine copy of Famous Monsters, number one. I have every issue that they ever put out, you know, um, because I collected them religiously. But so I would make up my friends and they would go home and their parents would freak out. Who did that Savini where you can't play with him anymore? You know, Um, but, (laughs) but, but when I started learning how, you know, That was the real um, and, you know, uh, after, you know, 10 years, maybe the makeup kit wound up in the attic and I was pursuing other things like I really thought I was going to be a choreographer, you know, a dance choreographer because of the, you know, because I was in theater. I was doing summer stock, but the makeup kit kept calling my name, you know, so um, I would get it out of the attic and uh, I started doing local commercials and making up the local horror host on Saturday night. And you know that led to uh, you know meeting George Romero. That's a whole other story, though.
1: So, but even before George Romero, you you got your first break on uh, Death Dream and Deranged, the Ed Ed Dean movie. Right. So uh, tell me tell me how you broke into the professional end of it. Yeah, when I got back
2: from Vietnam, I was stationed in North Carolina, and um, there was a theater there, a live theater, the Cape Fear Regional Theater. I walked in there one night and there was a character on stage. It was sweet bird of youth and he did He needed to be aged, a young kid. So I volunteered and then I became, I became the makeup director for eight years at that theater, but I was also acting in plays. I was a star. I was a stage star in North Carolina. I was King Arthur. I was Henry David Thoreau. I was Benjamin Franklin. I was, uh, uh, Charlie Brown, and you're a good man, Charlie Brown. I was in a play every night, but I also did the makeup. Like on Fiddler on the Roof, I did all the beards and the Paces, you know, and I would play a part. Um, Rashomon, you know, I did all the Chinese, you know. So I was in a play every night. Uh, and one night I was delivering signs to a bar. I don't drink, but I was delivering signs to this bar. And there was a guy sitting there. He looked like Indiana Jones, you know, with a leather jacket and a fedora. His name was Forrest Carpenter, and he had just done "Children shouldn't play with dead things" right. in in Florida. So I had my portfolio in the car, and I, that's what I tell my st- you know my students every graduation, which is coming up this Wednesday, is that now they they have to go off and put their portfolio in front of people that can help or hire them. So I had my portfolio in the car with stage makeup, showed it to him. And three days later, I was in Florida doing uh, Death Dream, assisting Alan Ormsby. And then after that, we did um, uh, Deranged in Canada. And then nothing. Maybe six years went by. And I decided I wanted to take advantage of the GI Bill. You only have seven years to take advantage of the GI Bill. You know, that's the education the army, the government gives you. Uh, when you've been in the right. service, or if you're a veteran of a foreign war. So I came back to Pittsburgh and auditioned at Carnegie Mellon. I got a full scholarship and eventually met George that way. You know, I mean, I can go into the George. But America. you studied,
1: you studied, you studied acting theater and directing at Carnegie Mellon, right?
2: Yes. Yes. After I got there. Yeah. Uh, I showed them again. I showed them my portfolio. And uh, I got a. Te- I went back to North Carolina. I was in a play. I think it was the line in winter. And I got a- Back then you got telegrams. I got a telegram from them that said, uh, we're pleased to announce that you've been accepted in the acting directing program. We're also pleased to announce that you will teach Tuesdays and Thursdays. Wow. So I ended up with a full scholarship. The GI bill was money that went right to me. I didn't have to pay for college, but way before that in high school, my high school was right next door to Carnegie Mellon University. So, and I was in all the plays in high school and our directors, our choreographers, our set builders were all from Carnegie Mellon University. Back then it was called Carnegie Tech. So we all, I had dreams, I had dreams of going to Carnegie Tech, uh, but it was too expensive. I was a poor little Italian kid, you know. Um, but, but George Romero came to my high school looking for a young kid now there are 1500 guys in my high school all-boy high school and uh, he picked me for and i got a screen test the movie was called wine of the fawn It never got made uh they shot they shot a video test of me so years later when i heard he was doing martin i went down i wanted to audition to be the vampire he remembered me from the high school and um you know he hired me to do the makeup effects and I wound up doing the stunts and playing a part. And then, of course, years after that, I, you know, uh, I was supposed to do *Night of the Living Dead* for George.
1: Really? Um, Back but in. I had enlisted.
2: Yeah. But I had enlisted in the army on what they call the hold program, which means there's 140 days within which they can call you in. And they did. They called me in, and I was in Vietnam when George made *Night of the Living Dead*.
1: Well, you mentioned Vietnam. This really had a strong effect on the work that you were to do later. You worked as a combat photographer, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And seeing actual the horrors of war and the wounds and, and the flesh rendered and the like, um, your job on so many movies, particularly during the run of the 80s, was depicting that in a realistic way. Tell me about that yeah, transition. Well, yeah.
2: The '80s was my decade. That was the splatter decade, you know. <laughs> That's when I did all my splatter movies. Um, so yeah, Vietnam was to me a lesson in anatomy. Um, when I created stuff, unless it unless it gave me the same feeling that I had when I saw the real stuff, the fake stuff wasn't real enough. So all my stuff is anatomically correct. And this is what pisses me off. It even pissed me off last night. I forget the hell the movie I was watching. But every, sound, every time I see an actor portraying themselves as dead, they they have their mouth closed, and they're trying to look pretty for the camera. You know, <sighs> This is not the case. I mean, a good director knows. And I'm the only makeup artist that has seen the real stuff, cadaver right. after cadaver after cadaver. When you're dead, no muscles work anymore, including... The jaw muscles, the bodies, the dead body, the mouths are always slack because the jaws aren't working. So I'm watching these. You know who does a great dead body? Danny Trejo in, <laughs> in, in Heat. He convinced me because, you know, he was like, you know, he didn't care how he looked. He didn't really? care how he looked. He was acting dead. And who knows how many times he's had to pretend being dead. You know what I mean? You know, Danny Trejo. Right. Quite of the- course. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a great documentary called Champion about Danny Trejo's days in prison. They brought him back to the prison. He's sitting in the cell that he was in and he was floored. He was speechless. He, he said, I can't, I don't remember it being so small, you know, his anyway. Wow. So, so he, he does a great dead body. Peter Coyote, did a great, great dead body, but you know, the mouth goes slack. Also, if you visit a crime scene, a bloody crime scene, a day afterwards, I hate this in the movie, where the blood is still red. The blood would turn brown. The blood right. the blood would turn burnt. So this is part of what I've learned uh, of realism. And I do try to convey that, did try to convey that in my effects. It has to be anatomically correct. The dead bodies, you know, I told Quentin Tarantino this, about how cadavers should be, you know, slack on Anyway. Those are two things I got from uh, Vietnam. And plus, it was a lesson in anatomy, you know, the real thing right there. You
1: know? Well, you had to detach your humanity from your job as a photographer. Tell me about that. Good it's, point. It's a good point. Yeah.
2: yeah, good point. Because, you know, when you're in that kind of an atmosphere, you know, I'm a little Italian kid from Little Italy here. Suddenly, you're plunged into a war situation. This is stuff you've never Hardly anybody ever sees this stuff unless you're a Marine or something in this army or a soldier in the army. So you have to turn off your emotions. I really felt like a switch almost having to turn off my emotions when I, you know, I almost stepped on a severed arm, heading out to a, a a battle zone, you know, where a guy was lying there. Um, We used to drop pamphlets on the Viet Cong with a word that if they said that word they were surrendering and they were turning themselves over to be, you know, rehabilitated, and they would become a prisoner. So my buddy was out there and this, this, this Viet Vietcom had shot him, shot my buddy in the balls. And uh, my buddy was trying to shoot him back. Uh, Gene Buttons was his name, but you know, the M16 jammed as they so often did. So um, he eventually got it unjammed. And the, the Viet Cong was saying the word, the word about, you know, surrendering and, uh, and wanting to, you know, come over. He had his hands up like this and he was moving closer to Gene. Well, Gene shot him, you know, because you know, he shot. He, here's Gene with a bullet in his scrotum, you know. So Jean shot him and the guy went down and the grenade that he had hidden in his armpit. He had pulled the pin of a grenade and held it with oh his armpit. God. He was going to get close and pitch it. OK, so but he didn't get to pitch it. When he went down, the grenade went off and took half of this guy away. So I almost stepped on this guy's arm walking over to the site. And then I got to him and he's lying there. And I clearly remember having to really turn off my emotions to not get sick or cry or whatever. You know. Now, OK, those emotions don't come back on automatically when you come home. I mean, I wasn't in the front lines. You can imagine how the grunts, the grunts used to come in like every so many months. The grunts are the guys that are out there, you know, platoon or or full metal jacket. Those guys, okay, those guys would come back and they were gone. You looked in their eyes and they were gone. okay. Uh so they were really, you know, I mean, I don't think they called it PTSD back then, but I'm sure I suffered from it because your emotion. I came back and I was I was a zombie. I was an emotionless person my marriage went right in the toilet you know and it took years um from my emotions to you know how they came back they came back when i was watching a movie i went to see midnight cowboy and and when dustin hoffman i mean i'm choking up right now when dustin hoffman died in that movie i went hysterical I, I cried like I've never cried before oh. in a movie theater, in a movie theater with my friend and my ex-wife, you know, and uh, I think it was, oh, it wasn't just a Dustin Hoffman died; It was all the pent up emotion that I had turned off and wasn't It all. And then from that day on, I could, a sunset was beautiful. I was, I became a person again, but it was a movie that brought me back emotionally. you know yeah the power of
1: cinema yeah
2: there you go i mean with the power of cinema you know i my whole career was based on a movie you know that i saw man of a thousand faces and here i was this kid whose emotions had to disappear and when they came back boarded they they came back you know full throttle really literally
1: yeah yeah i've had that experience as well uh when my uh my younger brother passed away and uh, just kind of kept it bottled up and then when one of my closest friend uh, died a few years later I was a blubbering child you know I know right yeah
2: all pent up all pent
1: up Yeah, yeah without realizing it so when you were doing this professionally and recreating these horrific scenes was that switch flipped again for you
2: no no well I guess you could say that Because I'm asked so many times, have you ever done anything, you know, that scared you or right? uh, Or how do you feel about scaring so many people? Because you know, king of gore, wizard of gore, splatter, you know, I hate that. I've asked my school to stop calling me that. I want to now be the maestro of makeup. Anyway. (laughs) Okay,
1: you're the maestro of mayhem from now on. (laughs)
2: But I was the king of gore uh in the eighties. I mean, you know. But, but to me, it was just doing the best job. To me, it was creating magic tricks. You know, my books are called Grand Illusions because I think of makeup effects as Grand Illusions because we're doing the same thing a magician does to you. A magician makes you believe that what you're seeing is really happening. You know, we have to make you believe that what you're seeing is really happening through makeup or special effects. You know, and they really are magic tricks. It got to a point where, It was in my contracts that the scenes where my effects appear i get to direct them because Uh a lot of directors are not magicians a lot of directors don't realize that for this effect to work you need a shot of this beforehand the murder weapon the real murder weapon has to crash through something so when the rubber one is used people still think it's the real one you know it's a magic trick so um i'm going off on a tangent i realize no no
1: that's what we're all about is the tangents
2: (laughs) but you have to sometimes you had to teach not all directors some of them That these are magic tricks and you need this and you need that for this to work and you know you're the effects guy so if they're if they're smart they they listen to you you know so but when i I know what the point is we were talking about uh uh realism uh on the effects uh, anatomically correct um but magic has so much, you know. I don't mean poof, you know, fairy tale magic. I mean, yeah. the, the mechanics, the mechanics of magic is something that I've always been into. I mean, my first job was uh, working for Dr. Silkini. Uh, Dr. Silkini is like the dread pirate Roberts. He dies and somebody else takes over and becomes Silkini. There have been many Silkinis. In fact, I'm a member, a card carrying member of the magic castle out there in LA. Oh yeah.
1: Such a great place.
2: You have to be a magician to be a member. So, Uh, so magic has always been very important to me. And I I incorporated it as into the effects. Like it's a stage show. I mean, I've done stage shows. You know, I was in death trap where, you know, I, where I'm having, I had a short sleeve shirt on and the guy garrots me, you know, and blood just shoots and covers my t-shirt because <laughs> during during the fight scene I would reach under the couch for the blood bags that I had prepared there now the audience is freaking out because you know I've got short sleeves on there's nothing in my hands you know the guy puts the garage around my neck and throws me to the floor you know my back is to the audience for a microsecond while I'm grabbing the blood bags and when I come back up and blood comes up they thought it was an accident that he really hurt me or something that was thrilling to me to freak out a live audience because you know in the movies i mean i was going to say you don't get applause but i i did get applause on the <laughs> dawn of the dead you know oh my god is that what this is going to be like when the guy bites the girl on the neck the crew wasn't ready for that you know so and of course we had to keep topping ourselves in dawn of the dead but i love freaking out a audience. but that's a thing too
1: yeah well you you create this technology these things didn't exist before taking a bite out of the neck and the stretching of the flesh and the blood coming from that the chopping off the top of the head from the helicopter blade i mean these were things nobody'd done these things before and you were creating movie magic with george
2: yes yes yeah and i didn't realize that i mean there's a lot of things you can get in a novelty store that i invented on a movie set like the the the, the cutout of the machete or the razor blade from Martin. Right, you know, from Friday it, no the 13th. Yeah. Today, you know? yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, tell me about that reunion with George that led to such an amazing explosion that really launched your career.
2: Right, okay. I went down, um, I heard he was gearing up. I was in, I went to college twice. Uh, once I majored in journalism and then a Carnegie Mellon it was acting directing. But at the college that I was majoring in journalism, That's when I heard George was doing Martin and went down and showed him my book. And that's when he said, oh, I'm gearing up to do this movie, Night of the Living Dead. We can use you on this. And of course, as you know, I was in Vietnam. But when I came back, let me try to, I don't have a chronological memory. I know I did stuff. I just don't know when I did it. In fact,
1: well, Death, Dream and Deranged were both in 74. And then it was 78 for Dawn of the Dead. Yeah,
2: I do know that. Yeah. 72, 73. But um, when I came back, when I was at, oh, I know, when I was in Carnegie Mellon, um, I, that's when I did Martin, okay, with George. And then he was doing Dawn of the Dead and you know called me to work on that. And, and that was it, Dawn of the Dead. I completely owe my career to George Romero because if there wasn't the Dawn of the Dead, for me, there wouldn't have been a Friday the 13th. And that one, two punches would set off my career producers who wanted the same success, you know, hire the same people. So that's, I got, you know, I was working one movie after the other in the eighties after, after Dawn of the Dead, you know, was uh, maniac, the prowler, you know, all those things, you know, I'd be on the set of the burning in Niagara Falls and, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein would show up about doing, you know, the burning. And then when I was on the burning, Joe Lustig would show up about doing the prowler, you know, on the sets, you know, so, so I worked constantly in the eighties. And, um, but again, it's, it's, it's because of, uh, doing Dawn of the dead with, required, I've done nine movies with George since Dawn of the dead, you know? So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about that stretch of the eighties, what it was like, because I know as much as you love creating movie magic and anatomical cinema, if I may brand it that, um, you also, Making monsters is something that you didn't really get as much an opportunity to do until later on. So tell me about that stretch in the 80s of what it was like and and what were the exciting times and what were the times where maybe you felt like you were having to repeat yourself.
2: Um, no, I constantly felt like I was repeating myself. In fact, um the Kevin Yeager death and Kevin Kevin.
1: Kevin Kevin Bacon. Bacon yeah
2: in friday the 13th was something that i did in martin with the steak going in the guy's neck you know right. um so that was a, a piece i already i don't think we even cast kevin bacon i used the same piece from martin for the <laughs> echo coming up but i was repeating myself constantly every one excuse me every one of those movies had a cutthroat, so i was using the same cutthroat appliance over and over again you know um but i did and so and, and yeah and so that was um It was great fun. I mean, it was it wasn't just cutting throats and, you know, chopping off heads, blowing heads off with shotguns. I've done a few times. Um, You know, I got to create Cropsy, the burn victim from uh, uh, the burning. Um, But mostly it was uh, effects like that, cutting off Fisher Stevens's fingers and. You know, in the in the rowboat, that was that was quite a murder scene in the rowboat in the burning.
1: Right. Well, and in, in tech, Texas Chainsaw Two, is one of my favorite things too. Not only is it a great movie and an insane movie, yeah. but the effects are so gruesome that they're hilarious.
2: Really, they are. They're they are really. I mean, you know, uh, uh, L.G. the guy that they skinned. Yeah, and and he puts the face on Caroline Monroe. <laughs> you know. Now, those things, those things were created separately. All the skin stuff on LG, you know, we, I know we went in at two o'clock in the morning to prepare him with all the skin stuff, but the face was prepared, you know, aside. So on, on set one day, we took the face and put it on LG and it fit perfectly Wow! because all he has was skin around his eyes and around his mouth and the mask had those missing. When the mask went on, it fit perfectly. And it, it it amazed us. It astounded us. Okay, um, so that was a highlight. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 certainly was a highlight. Getting to make up Bill Mosley with a plate in his head, and you know,
1: yeah.
2: and a lot of those deaths were right. You know, they were totally gory, but but you're right. For some reason, they were also funny, but but not intentionally. The very first death, the yuppie in the car, you know, that it was funny because they right. they 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 didn't edit it properly. I had the guys the actor I had the top of the real actor's head moving away they never showed that they only showed the chainsaw him screaming and then the back of him was blood squirting out in his hands you know that they they botched that pretty badly um, right. but you know um, but I did I did get to create historical monsters in creep show you know creep show right.
1: you got fluffy and you got
2: Fluffy and Nate's corpse, and you know the E.G. Marshall dummy with twenty-eight thousand cockroaches coming out <laughs> That's of That's my
1: favorite segment. Yeah,
2: oh, that was uh, <laughs> the the stories that the entomologist told us of collecting those roaches is scarier than any movie you've ever seen. Okay, <laughs> they 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 collected the roaches in the caves in Trinidad, where the roaches lived in bat guano, bat shit. You know, they would they would put their arms like all the way through yards into bat shit and create a hole, (laughs) turn off the lights, you know, wait 60 seconds, turn the lights back on. The hole would be filled with giant roaches that they would put in plastic bags, uh, creepy. Anyway, so uh, where was I? The point uh, creep show. Oh, yeah. So but but all the splatter movies leading up to creep show, uh, a lot of them I did with a 17 year old kid named Daryl Ferrucci. And it was just me and him that did all the effects in Creepshow. Creepshow was five movies, you know, yeah. five movies in one. So we did all that, but we had months to prepare ahead of time, you know. So, but that Creepshow led to other things. Like, um, I would say, well, I would say my masterpiece is Creepshow or Day of the Dead. I won, I won a French award. Um, I forget what it's called for Day of the Dead. You know, uh, Saturn Award for Day of the Dead. Right. Uh, People keep saying that's my masterpiece. I mean, there was some juicy effects in that. Great. But I think Creepshow was my
1: masterpiece. Oh, there was such a variety of it. Now, I'm sure that during the 80s, during the time of all the slashers, that you would come in with ideas that weren't in the script because you were always seeming to stretch the envelope. Uh, oh, yeah. And and try and do something new and not do the same garrotings over and over and over, and the main attraction for movies like The Prowler and The Burning, uh, and and Maniac were often your work. Yes. So In tell me about some, Yeah, tell me about some of the times where you said, you know, that's a good idea, but what if we did this?
2: Well, Dawn of the Dead is a perfect example of that because you know. Um, only like 30% was in the script. We came up with so many kills. We'd go to George and say, how about if we you know, drive a screwdriver through a zombies? Or, oh, okay. And then we would prepare and do a retractable screwdriver. But a lot of that stuff we made up. I, you know, I can't recall if the helicopter zombie was in the script or not, but but you're right. A lot of times we would go and suggest stuff. And even on, even on uh, Friday the 13th, there was no ending. I mean, it ended when... Uh, Betsy Palmer was killed but I had just seen Carrie where you know at the end of the movie the music is coming up and you're expecting the credits to roll any second because as far as you're concerned the movie is over and then that fucking hand comes out of the grave and scares (laughs) the death out of you I said let's do that let's have Jason you know come out of the water and attack Adrian and they Sean Cunningham said yeah but he's 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 dead I said make it a dream because Audiences unbelievably will accept anything if you present it as a dream. I mean, look at the, wasn't there a season of Dallas or something when
1: JR Oh, yeah, the very ending of it. The whole
2: previous season was a dream, you know. So and anyway, they bought it and it paid off because that's scare when Jason comes out of the lake. You know, that was my idea. Um, So we we were constantly, I mean, even on like uh, from dusk till dawn. I would say, I had, I had no hesitation about saying to Robert Rodriguez, hey, may I make a suggestion? Yeah, yeah, what? How about, you see these fingers, these long fingers? What if I come up over Fred Williamson's shoulders like spiders, you know, before uh, I attack him? He said, let me see it. He said, okay, great. Well, And he did eight takes of it, you know? So uh, good directors, as you know, can't think of everything you know, good directors listen to everybody and pick and choose what they think is best or better or something that they hadn't thought of. You know, Romero did a long time. Romero lets you improvise as an actor and lets you improvise as far as effects go. So that was that was great fun, you know, just coming up with shit and get, being able to do it, you know.
1: Well, let's talk a little about the work as an actor before we get into the work as a director, because. You know, you you work with George on Night Riders. You had a big part in Night Riders, and and you you did uh, from dusk till dawn and the TV series as well, and so many things. I mean, your list of credits as an actor is a lot longer than your list of credits for anything else combined. And so, tell me about that. You studied as an actor and as a director. Tell yes. me about that transition from doing the makeups, doing acting to makeup to acting yes, to. Makeup.
2: I mean, every time. Almost every time I did the makeup for a movie, like you know, let's say Martin, you know, I, every time I did a makeup, I also tried to play a part. Uh, on George's films, he would let me, you know. On Martin, I was his wife's boyfriend, you know, uh, at the table. <laughs> on Dawn of the Dead, I just simply wanted to be one of the bikers, and I wound up being the lead biker, you know, because we put on a jacket and you know, and you know, we kept the. Uh, you know, inventing stuff, inventing uh, scenes, you know, and then George wanted to see more and more of it. So I wanted to play a part in the movies that I was doing effects on, and that just led, it led to more and more parts, and then just parts, you know, in Night Riders. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm credited with doing the effects in Night Riders, but I did do them, you know, um, as a side thing, you know, because I have a history with George, but um, I was the first person he cast, uh, in Night Riders. And then, um, for, for, from Dust Till Dawn, I think it was Greg Nicotero that suggested me uh, the Quentin or Robert and Robert was already aware of me. He had seen me on the Letterman show and stuff like that, you know? So I sent them an audition tape. Now, actually the, this, the, the sides they sent me were for the Fred Williamson part of Frost, but I saw this sex wow. machine guy. And because Frost was a Vietnam veteran, you know, maybe that's why. But I saw the sex machine part. So I, I did the sex machine part. And when they got it, uh, 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 Robert says Quentin just laughed his ass off on my audition. The audition. <laughs> so they changed, they changed the body types. Sex machine became a little guy and Frost was the big guy, uh, Fred Williamson. So that's how I got that. And then, uh, you know, Kurtzman hired me for the demolitionist. So suddenly I was getting only offers to, to act instead of doing, uh, you know, makeup effects.
1: It's a lot easier.
2: (laughs) Well, well, is it? I don't think so. I think. Okay. I think acting is the hardest thing to do because, okay. You have to cry in five minutes. Right. Imagine, imagine how you would have to gear yourself up for your body to produce tears. I mean, that's, that's tough. A few yeah. people can do it. Tony Todd can do it. Tony Todd can cry on cue like that, you know. In fact, when I was auditioning for Night of the Living Dead, uh, I was done with all the odd, You know, Lawrence Fishburne auditioned for Ben for Night of the Living Dead. Wow. Eric, Eric LaSalle. Ving Rames auditioned to wow. me to be Ben in Night of the Living Dead. So we're done. I'm leaving the office. Tony Todd comes in. You got to read me. Okay. Gave him the script. He went out in the hallway for five minutes. He came back without the script, did all the lines, and produced tears. I closed the book. That's it. That's Ben. We found Ben. Lovely. Okay.
1: Tony is amazing. I've worked with him a couple of times as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Just great. Uh, but what's, well, what's, so acting, well, yes, acting, I think, is the hardest thing. Well, I know, well, maybe directing is the hardest thing, you know. Right. Because uh, you're the head of all departments. Yep. And you're con- at least in my case, you're constantly on guard to not be sabotaged. Unbelievably, there are people out there on your crew, for some reason, have a need to sabotage you. Have you experienced that as a director?
1: I haven't really experienced that on, on a crew, uh, maybe on a network or studio level uh, a couple of times, but never on that level.
2: Well, that's I think that's what I'm talking about. I haven't I didn't experience it, you know, on TV. Yeah. I experienced that. And that was so strange to me, you know, because you're the director. You know, everybody hopefully would want to see you do the best job you can possibly do and support you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway.
1: Well, let's talk about that move into directing because um, you know, it's one thing to direct the makeup effects scenes. It's another thing entirely to, you know, you you, you did it on Tales of the Dark Side, but then your remake of Night of the Living Dead, which, tell me the history of that. Is it true that it was because the original had gone out of copyright and that George wanted to protect the copyright that it was remade?
2: Some of that, some of that is true, yes. Um, I think directing the effects on the movies is partly why George asked me to direct Tales from the Dark Side. OK, um, I mean, the first tells from the dark side episode I did was, you know, inside the closet, the creature inside the closet. Yeah. I, I spent the first two weeks building the creature, you know, <laughs> designing and building the creature that I was going to use in my episode, you know. So they got um, two for one. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I was paid two for one, but uh, <laughs> so they first asked me to direct tells from the dark side. I did three episodes. Now there are seventy-four episodes of that. Ten are really good. The rest <laughs> are the rest are unwatchable. You know? That's
1: not a good batting average.
2: <laughs> no, uh, John Harrison did a fact. Mike Gornick they did great episodes. You know. Yeah. Two of the episodes I directed were the only ones that they had full scripts written, theatrical script to do features of. One was Inside the Closet. The other one was Halloween Candy about the boy werewolf. Right. Okay, so um, so I did those. And then I'm walking with George one day and he says I'm going to remake Night of the Living Dead. And I thought great I'm going to be creating zombies for another Romero film. He said no no I want you to direct it okay. Wow. So that that's how I got that gig you know. I became a member of the DGA and boom you know there it was you know. But it really was the worst experience of my life you know. Really? Um, yeah horrible yeah horrible. Um well Tell me know, how. Makes it- yeah. Well, two weeks into it, I was in the middle of a divorce, which I didn't oh. see coming. You know, I'm worried about my my daughter losing my daughter and my half my wealth and half my everything. You know, I was just, you know, you don't know, when you, you know when you're directing, you're totally concentrated and focused day and night while well, in the middle of your sleep, you're not you're thinking of nothing but the the movie. Well, I had now I had these uh These interruptions, you know, in my in my thoughts, you know, these process. Um, Plus, okay, I have a new book out called Night of the Living Dead 90, the version you've never seen. Do you know about that? Okay, it's called the version you've never seen, and what it is, it's it's the it's the 600 storyboards that I created to do Night of the Living Dead. Now, there's so many things I did not get to do, which are illustrated. In those storyboards, which is why I called it the version you've never seen, because if you look through it wow, you're watching a movie that you're familiar with. But oh, my God. Oh, you didn't get to do that. Oh, shit. You know, so (laughs) really, when I every time I watched the movie, it's only like 30 percent of what I intended to do. So for a long time, I hated the movie. Um, But then I went to a midnight screening one night and there was a QA and a beforehand at 11 o'clock. I did the Q&A and I wasn't going to stay and watch the movie, but I did. And it's the first time I saw it objectively, you know, without my whining about 30% and all that. And the acting is terrific. The suspense is there. It's really a good movie. Um, but I hated it for a long time only because of what I did not get to do. Okay. Uh, and I really think it would have been really, I mean, people love it. They say it's better than the original and blah, blah, blah. I'm hearing constantly from Night of the Living Dead Societies, you know, but uh, wh- what a movie I, I had. It was, a, it wasn't the movie I had in mind, you know, um, but, you know, yeah, but at, well. on screen. one, the divorce and then, uh, you know, time. So I put those storyboards, 600 storyboards on the wall in the office. So if the art director came in or the costume or whoever came in, I could go through the whole movie with them. And what I was going to do, George Romero came in. He looked at them. He said, these are great, but you've got a six week movie up here. And you've only got four weeks to shoot it. And he was right. The, part of the reason I didn't get to do so many things was time, you know, just time. Time well, is- this,
1: it's, it's, it's so rough to go through all those personal things at the moment that you have a tremendous opportunity to do your first studio movie as a director.
2: And i I already created the movie on paper. It's like Hitchcock. Hitchcock yeah. was bored with making movies because he already made the movie on paper, you know. That's how I felt. I made the movie. So every time my hands got slapped or were out of time, you know, I just keeps kept seeing all the the movie that I created, I had to give up stuff, you know. So
1: well, nobody else sees what's not in it but you. So and now we all will <laughs> with the book. But it's interesting, you are an a fascinating combination you are an artist but you're also an athlete and you're a stuntman as well as an actor and a director and a makeup effects artist so are you you leading up to me getting hit
2: by a car in my bicycle recently
1: i'm not but i'm now i am you didn't know about that i did not tell me about that and then we'll get into the fencing and the bodybuilding and all of
2: well what were you but first let me hear what you were going to say okay
1: I was just going to ask you about this combination of being an artist. We think of artists as sensitive human beings, which you have proven to be on numerous occasions, but they're not usually bodybuilders, competitive bodybuilders. They're not usually fencers. They're not usually motorcycle stunt artists. You know, And you are all of these things, not just a Renaissance man, but more than that.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I'm very proud of all that. And I think that's what saved me. When the car hit me, you know, I'm 74, I got hit by a car on my bicycle. You know, I didn't break any bones. There's no stitches. I lost part of my scalp, but, uh, oh, it messed me up. I was f- five months ago. Oh
1: man! I'm
2: still, recuper- I'm still recuperating. I got a bone in my shoulder that's still sticking up from that day. But um, I think all that stuff kind of saved me because I didn't, you know, uh, there was a, I, I was in a bike lane. And there was a truck in the intersection that was blocking a lane. So it created a blind spot for me and the woman that hit me. So I proceeded. And boy, I've never been so hit so hard in my life. Oh my I, God. Took the hit. I took the hit with my shoulder and my head broke the windshield. And uh, I must have been knocked out. Because to me, in my mind, the car hit me and I sat up on the ground and I felt blood on my head. And there was already an ambulance. And the police were already there. So I must have been knocked out. And the woman was crying and screaming, you're alive, you're alive. Because I must have been unconscious. And then when I came to, you know, she was so happy that I was alive. It really wasn't her fault. You know, she couldn't see me. I couldn't see her. So that was like five months ago. And um, I just only recently am able to turn my head like this. Wow. I had to go to some physical therapy recently. Um, stretches you know and you know it's great it's great the guy the guy doing the physical therapy is uh, uh a vet because i you know i i went to the va hospital uh, and um he served three terms in afghanistan and two in iraq so i asked him about the camel spiders do you know about the camel spiders
1: these tell sp- me about them i do not
2: anyway he said he told me he said he was taking a shit and he reached behind him to grab the toilet paper and he felt like he had grabbed a skeleton hand because when he came back that fucking oh. spider that to me is one of the scariest creepiest oh. cuz i hate spiders oh my god i'm so afraid of spiders you know <laughs> and my girl my wife my wife was from australia so when she came here and saw a simple house spider she freaked out because in australia you see a spider it can kill
1: you okay right you
2: <laughs> yes. know I mean, every lethal animal that exists is in Australia. Okay, I went off on a tangent there again, sorry.
1: The tangents (laughs) are the best parts, Tom. Uh, (laughs) So tell me what you love the most. All of these things are all a facet of you. Is there one of them that gives you the most pleasure or the most sense of accomplishment?
2: Well, it's almost like they're all my children. Is there a favorite one? Um, I just recently worked on a movie called *The Black Phone*. That's coming out from Blumhouse. Actually, Universal is releasing it. It stars Ethan. Uh, I'm allowed to talk about some of it. Ethan Hawke stars in it, and I, I designed his look, okay, which changes constantly. It opens uh, January 22nd here you know, in the States. Um, so cool. I guess I'm trying to think, but but again, okay, but no, but that didn't get, I mean, it was great fun doing it and all that. And uh,
1: But I know, mean, doing... acting versus bodybuilding versus yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, directing. Still
2: body, I mean, I bodybuild, I work out every day. I have a gym in my house. I mean, a big enviable gym. I have the best equipment, you know. My grandson who just graduated from the Marines would come and work out in my gym, you know, instead of going to, you know, surrounded by a mirror, I, you know, I got the best equipment anyway. So I still work out that, that feels good. And I love, uh, my 75th birthday is coming up in November. And as you, I don't know if you know, but I publish these birthday pictures. Do you know about the, the birthday pictures with the cake?
1: I I do not please. Oh,
2: okay. Um, I'm going to send it to you. Okay. Uh, Every birthday right. I do, I put the age on a cake and I, I hold the cake shirtless. Okay. To, yeah. cause I'm in pretty damn good shape you know, for well,
1: no question. Plus you've also gotten awards for your bodybuilding yeah. for your age and that sort of.
2: Thing. So, but the 75th is coming up and that's going to be, I skipped 74 because I was hit by a car on my bicycle.
1: <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs>
2: So the 75th is coming up. So I got to, I'm, you know, so I'm working out like crazy for that birthday picture that's coming up. Okay, 75th. So um, yeah, I enjoy body, but okay, what do I enjoy? What do I love the most? Um, Well, here's the deal, okay? I love creating. I have, in the past uh, six months, I've done 15 paintings, okay? Um, Because you're inside, you're on lockdown, you know, I wake up, I work out, I paint, okay? I've got sixteen paintings downstairs. I'll send you a picture of that as well. I'll send you two Please. pictures. Yeah, the, the the birthday, the birthday, and the painting. We'll birthday. post them
1: for sure. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, um, so I'm really enjoying the hell out of that, and that's three o'clock in the morning. I'll wake up and go down to the latest canvas and start and keep painting on it. You know. So, but but it all boils down to what I tell my students. It's the joy of creating. You do that when you direct something, as well as I do, when I do a makeup effect or something. You give life to something that never existed before until you decided to make it exist. That's what I tell my students it's all about. I mean, great, yeah, get a portfolio, you can get a job with it. But what keeps you going, what keeps that passion going is the joy of creating giving life. Like I said, to something that you're like Dr. Frankenstein pulling Mm. the switch on your talent and your creativity to see what rises from the table. And it only exists because you gave it life. You, I I tell my students, you're all Dr. Frankenstein's. you know? So it's that I hope, I, I hope when they graduate, I got a graduation coming up where I have to give a speech and part of it's going to be, I hope that you feel the way I did when I, when I, delved into this and that's the joy of creativity there's pressure of course there's deadlines but it's the joy of creativity that uh, is is under it all so whether i'm painting in the basement or you know creating masks for ethan hawk or um uh, you know I, i'm constantly sculpting as well I, you know i haven't you know the last effects i did in the movie i think was for mr stitch in france until recently with the Ethan Hawke movie, okay? So, but I'm constantly sculpting and making masks for myself. Trick or Treat Studios is selling masks that I've made. My sculpture of Fluffy is now for sale from Trick or Treat. Uh, My Phantom of the Opera bust is going to be for sale on Trick or Treat. So I'm constantly creating stuff for them. And that's, I guess, I guess the answer to your question is it's not one thing in specific, it's creating in general. Yeah. Creating is what makes me happy and alive. And,
1: and what's great about it is that you share it. And, and tell me about, well, not only did you launch KNB with the the uh, uh, Howard and, and Greg and, and, uh, and Bob, um, they all got it, their inspiration from you. And now with the, the Tom Savini Makeup Effects Program at the Douglas Education Center, yeah. tell me how that came to be, because you, you mentioned the classes and the inspiration that you give. Tell me how it evolved into an actual living, breathing well,
2: place. Let's go back to Greg a little bit. I was sitting in Greg's hot tub at his, at his house in Calabasas. And I said, Greg, I have two words for your massive success. You're good. You're good. He is good. He's very good. And I said, if you hadn't even met me, you still would be who you are today. And he stopped me. He stopped me. He said, no, 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 you're wrong. He said, you inspired me to do what I'm doing. I mean, Greg was in medical school when he came to work for me on Day of the Dead. He said, no, no, you inspired me to do this. Okay. So I agree with that. Howard, I love Howard. He worked for me on Day of the Dead. I didn't know Bob Kurtzman. You know, they were all pals that got that school started. Anyway, so like I said, growing up, there was no place you could learn how to do this stuff. Because everybody kept their secrets, except Dick Smith. I would call, I think the first time I called Dick Smith, I was a, I was a, a, stag, a, a stuttering imbecile. You know, he called, <laughs> me, he called me down. He said, stop, 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 listen next time you call me, why don't you write all your questions down so that you're not so nervous and you just ask me, okay? I swear to God, two hours later, I'm still on the phone with him and he's telling me how to do stuff. And then he would, then he would type it up and Xerox it. Back then it was Xerox. He would Xerox it to me. He so openly shared his secrets, you know, you know, and we brought Dick Smith came to my school for five years you know, doing portfolio review, I mean, uh, in fact, we, we made a deal with him to wholesale his course. We would hand it to the students because it's a collection of the greatest reference material you can imagine. You know, 10 ways to cast a hand, 15 ways to cast, you know, it's all in, you know, the, this, this course of his. So, So he was a huge influence on sharing secrets, okay? Um, I grew up where everybody shared secrets you couldn't learn. Dick Smith changed all that. And it was that, with that in mind that I wrote my Grand Illusions books to share all the, the secrets. You know, I even used Dick Smith's um, uh, uh, case mold. Uh, I mean, I, we redrew the illustrations from what he crudely drew, but they're in my book and he let me do it. He wrote the introduction to my second book because I fooled him. I fooled him with the effect from... Day of the Dead, where the guy is lying there and all that's there is his brain. You know, it's a real guy. He said, where did did you put his head? You know, he couldn't (laughs) figure out. So if I can fool Dick Smith, okay. Anyway, that was a huge compliment to me, uh, fooling him. But uh, so that's, and the school, you know, I got, I can't tell you how many times some lawyer or somebody, the Art Institute came to me, Joe Blasco School came, you know, he wanted to put my name on his, program you know um, um but these lawyers you know hey we own a warehouse down here you know how about we start a school so many times they came to me about starting the school so when jeff impression came to me he's the guy that's president of my school now okay i thought it was another you know bullshit artist you know i thought so i kind of ignored him you know and he kept badgering me he kept badgering me about starting the school he said why don't you meet me for dinner and i'll map out to you he sent me, he's also an accountant, a professional accountant. He sent me an accounting of what I would make from like a if a hundred students came into the school. So I'm looking at this and I called him and I said, Jeff, you know, I spend more on I spend more on cigars than what you're offering. <laughs> he says, Are you reading this right? He said, Meet me, meet me at the Baltimore restaurant. I went to the restaurant and he showed me I was misreading where the decimal points were. So I signed, on the, <laughs> I signed on the spot and now 20 years later, we're still, the students come from all over the world. You know, uh, it's a 16 month course. It's a degree program. The parents love that it's a degree program. And we're, we're pushing out special makeup effects artists, you know, every, uh, every three months as a graduating class.
1: You know, so it's going so there's a lot of pride in, in, in a lot of pride in, in sharing your knowledge and that's something that has been in the makeup community for a long time that that Dick Smith started right, but that not just that, I
2: mean, Not just that I't I used to have it here. I had a list of all the movies that our students have worked on. You, you, you name a movie in the past 15 years. you know our students have worked on it even most recently on The Avengers, Army of the Dead. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 3. I'm trying to remember them of, but and, and it's not just movies. The training allows them to work in toy companies, mask companies, theater, uh, haunted attractions. I mean, you know,
1: there's wow. a lot of places they
2: can, they can use what they learn. You know?
1: Well, Tom, it's quite a legacy. And thank you so much for sharing it with us on the show. And it was great to finally sit down for an hour with you and talk. An hour has gone by. It, yeah. felt like, it felt like 15 minutes that's <laughs> right <laughs> thank you for making it fly like that and thank fly you for everything you can fine, contribute. Right. Yeah.
2: well thank you so much Mick it was a pleasure
1: alright Tom great to see you bye bye thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify or your favorite podcast app